Well, you ready? Let's do this. Open up your Bibles. Uh, I think page 983 on the Pew Bible. And we're looking at Colossians. We're in chapter 2 now. Uh, We're looking at verses 1 through 5 in our sermon series titled, Walking in Faithfulness. In our passage this morning, Paul informs the Colossians that he has entered into a great struggle on their behalf. Not a physical struggle, but a spiritual struggle. He cannot be there with them physically, but he is with them in a very real sense through, through prayer. His concern for them is something we should all be concerned with. He longs for this church to be knit together in love. What an amazing desire to be knit together in love. Something happens when the local church is knit together in love. What is it? Let's find out. Colossians 2, verses 1 through 5. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in the body and I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this great gift, this treasure, this passage that illuminates for us how truly blessed we are to have been brought into the body of Christ, the church. We thank you um, that in Christ we are being knit together in love. We pray for more of that. May this passage, as we study it, help us towards that end, we pray. Amen. Do you remember in John's gospel when the resurrected Jesus appeared to his disciples, but remember Thomas wasn't there? And the others went and told him about it, and Thomas doubted that it was true. And Thomas said he wouldn't believe unless he saw Jesus and touched him. You remember remember what happened? Well, eight days later, Jesus appears to them again, and Thomas is there. Now, I don't know about you, but I probably would have avoided Thomas. I'm sure Jesus would have known what Thomas, he's a doubter. Something must be wrong with him. That's not how Jesus responded. In fact, he wanted Thomas to come to him with his doubts because he loved him. He wanted Thomas to experience the glory of knowing the risen Christ. And so so Jesus spoke first. He said, put your finger here. Doubts. We all have them. If you say you don't have doubts, well then I doubt that you're very humble. <laughs> it's, see, it's when we're absolutely convinced about everything that we face, an even bigger, bigger problem comes our way, arrogance and pride. Having doubts is a normal part of being a human being. 
Doubts can even be productive as they drive us deeper into study and an investigation. Doubts humble us and they remind us that we are but finite, that we are not God. So doubts are normal. They can be healthy, provided we turn to the right source of knowledge to alleviate our doubts. For instance, if you were to ask me, um, Mark, do these high heels go with this dress? Uh, I would say, don't ask me. But if you had doubts as to whether that new barbecue joint had really good brisket, well, bring me along. I'd be happy to help you. See, doubts are normal. It's where we turn to for understanding that's important. In this letter to the Colossians that we've been studying, we see that they're experiencing doubts concerning the Christian life. As we've seen in previous sermons and in the ones to come, this church is being pressured by outsiders who claim to have secret knowledge concerning God and spiritual matters. We know this, that they have doubts, because they seem to be interested in listening to the outsiders. In verse 4, Paul says, No one may delude you with plausible arguments. Now, the phrase plausible arguments, by saying that, Paul means like clever, impressive speech, like fine-sounding speech that gives the appearance of sophistication and being substantive, but ultimately it proves to be false and destructive. And it's true, isn't it? When we have doubts, we will listen to just about anybody who seems plausible. We'll even listen to that little voice inside of our heads. And it's also true that, that when, when people say things we want to hear, we're, we're usually not very critical of those words, are we? The church in Colossae had outsiders that were trying to delude them. They were being told that there's more to life than what following after Jesus has to offer. Have you ever felt that way? See, we face some of those same plausible arguments today. We even have popular musicians like Billy Joel, our neighbor down the road, who, who put these plausible arguments to music. I'm not going to sing it, but they say there's a heaven for those who will wait. Some say it's better, but I say it ain't. I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. The sinners are much more fun. You know that only the good die young. That's basically the message we hear every day. There's more to life than what Christ can give. So feel free to doubt and then listen to our plausible arguments. Paul says, do not be deluded. There is a treasure for you to experience. He wants them to realize how well they have it in the body of Christ. In verse 3, Paul says there are hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge for them to mine like gold. And this treasure is found where? It's in Christ. Just as the disciple Thomas doubted and took his doubts to Jesus, so to us today. We have doubts, and instead of listening to the sophisticated and clever influences around us, we can take them to Christ. Now, let me ask you, where do you find Christ today? If someone were to ask you, where can I find the resurrected Jesus Christ? I have some questions would you know the answer? And don't be so quick to think you do. Most um, um, Christians in America tend to get this answer wrong. Where is the resurrected Christ found today on earth? You will find the resurrected Jesus with his people in his word. They go together. The body of Christ, the church, with the word of Christ, holy scriptures. Christ is present there. 
So today's sermon is titled, Hidden Treasure in Community. God has hidden in Christ all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge for us to uncover and to experience fullness of life. It's within this community of the body of Christ where where we mine these treasures. And in this, Christ strengthens us against our doubts. You guys ready to learn this? Let's dive in. We're going to divide our time into two areas. First, the blessing of gospel community. And then the treasure of gospel community. The blessing of gospel community. In verse 1, Paul wants the Colossians know that, to know that like a parent, he's concerned from them. He hears what's going on in Colossae. And he lets them know that he's struggling, not just for them, but for the other churches in the Lycus Valley in that region. And what is he struggling for? Paul is praying that the blessing of gospel community would bring about three realities. What are they? Encouragement, unity, and assurance. First, encouragement. Verse 2, so that their hearts may be encouraged. This word encouraged is more than like a little pat on the back. It's more than simply like emotional comfort. Paul isn't offering up some sort of emotional support puppy, as nice as they are. Um, He's offering them something that will allow them to outgrow their need for emotional support and hand-holding. See, the same word in the Greek means to to strengthen or or to fortify. The body of Christ at Colossae, as well as every other local body of Christ on earth today, is in need of this type of strengthening, lest they be susceptible to being deluded with plausible arguments. Just as a healthy, strong body is able to fight off illness, so a healthy and strong, encouraged church is able to fight off falsehoods. That makes sense. And so Paul's desire is that the church would experience encouragement of heart, strengthening more and more with what this gospel message. It's also worth noting in the Greek that um, to be encouraged or be strengthened, it's in the passive voice. It's not something that you do. It's something that's done for you. And, and what we also know is that this is what's called a divine passive. This is what God does for you. How encouraging is that for us to know? That strength and comfort and encouragement, all that we need is, is a gift from God. So the first reality of the blessing of community is encouragement, the strengthening of the body. The second reality of the blessing of community is unity. It's actually attached to the encouragement. Look again at at the first part of verse 2. So that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love. What a marvelous picture. God desires for us, Grace Church, that we would be knit together, entwined together, that we would be enmeshed together. And what is it that unites us, that binds us, that knits us together? Paul says it's love. The same love of God that reconciles sinners like us back to him is the same love we are to manifest in community together. This is forgiving love. This is patience uh, with others. This is long-suffering. This is giving of oneself kind of love. And so we are the body of Christ, and the body of Christ is knit together by the love of Christ. The same love that took your sin and restored you into an eternal relationship with God is the same love that Christ has for you, and it's the same love that will unite us 
Unite us with other sinners like us in this grace. So the body of Christ is to be united and held together by the very same love of Christ. Now, some of you are perhaps saying, yeah, 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 I've heard this before. I know, I know. We're the body of Christ, and we're to love each other, right? Uh, but it's more than that. If it was just that, I would, I, would, I would roll my eyes along with you. But Paul here paints a big and, and a glorious picture, and he wants us to sit before it and, and kind of like take in the colors, right? The beautiful colors are seen in the third reality of the blessing of community, and that's assurance. When we have doubts, what is it that we need? We need assurance. And not just the kind where you're just told, well, everything will be all right. You don't need to know how or why. It's just everything will be fine. Now, that's not the kind of assurance that Paul has for us. He, there is an assurance that comes with understanding, and that's what we see here. Knowledge is what brings about the riches of assurance. Just as, just as turning on a light in a dark room can calm a child's fear, so too understanding and knowledge from, from God can allay our fears and defeat our doubts. This isn't just assurance of salvation. It's a wonderful thing to be ensure, assured that you are indeed a child of God. But this is assurance that children of God have. It's, it's when you experience difficulties. Those, it makes it so that those difficult experiences won't come around and undermine uh, your understanding of God's love for you or his power made perfect for you. This is assurance during those times when God's providence and his timetable do not line up with your timetable for your life. Say a career or a spouse. This is assurance that keeps you from thinking that the gospel has somehow let you down. This is assurance that living for Christ and his kingdom is the ultimate good of a life well lived. It is knowing that your decision to follow Christ was right. And not just right, but the absolute very best of all possible options for you. As my friend John Yenchko likes to say, Jesus is not the booby prize. <laughs> Following after Jesus does not lead you to a dead end. If you had a thousand lives to live and you followed Jesus with every one of them, it would take you places that are grand and glorious. Do we trust him with that? Isn't it true, though, we, we have unbelieving friends and family members and they cannot, for the life of them, figure out why you would sacrifice earthly gain to enjoy Jesus here and now. And so they will delude you with plausible arguments. Oh, you need a man. You're not getting any younger. Who cares if he's a Christian or not? And plausible arguments don't just come from without. They can easily come from within, right? Think of all the ways Satan will try to sow seeds of doubt in our minds. Adverse circumstances come our way. Or prayer seems to go unanswered. Or an illness that isn't healed. Or a friend abandons us in a time of need. All things like this have the potential to what? To undermine our confidence in who God is. But what Paul is saying is that, that having these experiences doesn't mean that we cannot experience what Paul refers to here as full assurance. You can experience hardship in life and yet have great assurance 
in life at the same time. And notice Paul doesn't say our assurance as Christians comes from warm, fuzzy feelings, right? The Bible never instructs us when experiencing troubles and doubts to sit and wait for the Holy Spirit to give you warm fuzzies. If you get them, great. But that's not what Scripture points us to. No, Paul here says that assurance isn't a feeling. Listen, it's a finding. Assurance is not a feeling. It is a finding. Though you feel like God has abandoned you, what you find in Scripture is that God often uses trials to awaken you to your sin and to your sloth and to perhaps discipline you for your own good. Or you feel that your burdens are too heavy. But then in Scripture, you find that Jesus says, come to him and yoke your life to him. And you will find that the the burdens are easy. Assurance isn't a feeling, it's a finding. And this is best done in community. This understanding and knowledge is experienced as we're being knit together in love. Do you understand this? It's a communal reality. Do you, do you embrace this? Or do you long for this? Curtis Vaughn says that Paul's words suggest that God's revelation in Christ cannot be properly understood in isolation from the fellowship of Christians. And yet we try. As C.S. Lewis put it, <laughs> This is a good one. The next best thing to being wise is to live in a circle of those who are. I'm not saying I'm wise. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying Tristan's wise. I'm not saying that, that, that we're like wise on our own. But we are wise when we gather together under Scripture and the power of the Holy Spirit to discern what God has for us. We are wise together. Not alone, in isolation. Collectively, the body of Christ, as it sits under the word of God, becomes a circle of wisdom. Many of you know exactly what Paul is telling us. You've experienced seasons of trials where doubts arose. Perhaps you felt like you could not go on. But because you are knit together in love here at Grace Presbyterian Church, your brothers and your sisters walked with you, and your heart was encouraged, as well as what? Their hearts were encouraged too. And so when you're going through hardships and when we're tempted to doubt, we need the body of Christ to walk alongside us and instruct us. It is why Paul will later write in chapter 3 this command, beautiful. Let the words of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. This is how your life was meant to be lived, not in isolation, but in gospel community. And in gospel community, there is blessing, great blessing. So that's the blessing of gospel community. Now for the second and last point, the treasure of gospel community. Paul wants this church in Colossae to be wealthy. You heard me right. And by extension, Paul desires that Grace Presbyterian Church 
would be wealthy too. Oh, not with that kind of earthly treasure, things that are perishable in this world. But there is a treasure that money cannot buy, and that treasure is what? It's Christ himself. Look again at verse 2 and 3. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. There are riches, my friends, of wisdom and knowledge for you and me to mine. Like gold miners, we, we dig together and we find a valuable nugget here and then we find a, another one over there and then we open up this mine together and we clear away the overburden and we find a vein of gold there and we trace that part of the vein and what happens when we trace the vein of riches? We, we come and are brought to the very mother load, Christ himself. Christian, your wealth, our wealth, as the body of Christ, is Christ. For in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, it's not just wisdom, wisdom and it's not just knowledge. You can be wise but lack knowledge, and you can have knowledge and lack wisdom. It's both. Why both? Because you need both wisdom and knowledge to walk in faithfulness. Remember, that's the theme. This church would walk in faithfulness, pleasing to the Lord. We need wisdom and knowledge to do this. A.W. Tozer wrote, The wisest person in the world is the person who knows the most about God. Kind of makes sense, right? And if you recall, what has Paul been doing throughout this letter? He, he's, been, he's been showing us that, that Jesus Christ is no mere mortal. That he is God in the flesh. Therefore, Jesus is, is to be preeminent. He's supreme over all things. He holds all things together. Everything belongs to him and for his glory. And so later in chapter 2, Paul will write, Listen, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. If you're here and you're like, well, I don't really think Jesus was divine. Hello, that's what it says, right? The fullness of deity dwelt in, dwells in Jesus bodily. Let that soak in. Jesus is God in the flesh. I cannot fully explain how the fullness of God took on human form and walked on this earth. It's one of those things you just kind of have to chalk up as unknowable. I mean, as big as our brains are, they're like pea-sized compared to God's, right? So our human minds cannot wrap our heads around Jesus being fully God and fully man. But that's what Scripture teaches us. And so we marvel at it. We delight in it. And he is the one we go to for our doubts. And we're able to mine from Christ treasures, riches of wisdom and knowledge. You know, there are many today who claim to be spiritual but they have no taste or love for Jesus. They swear that their life is spiritual. They know all about the spiritual part of being a human being. But for them, this spiritual life is like about like tapping some inner power or potential deep inside themselves. This is the type of thinking that, that Paul is warning this church about because it, it sounds so flattering. You know, I can even hear, I can even hear Miss Piggy delighting in it. Mwah! 
I have unlimited potential moi in me. Moi? Sign me up. All right, that was pretty bad, wasn't it? All right, that was my Miss Piggy. Where's Kermie? Sam Storm writes this. Listen, this Christless spirituality that permeates our world must be identified and repudiated with unyielding fervor. There is no, listen, no existential value apart from Christ. There is no ultimate meaning in life apart from Christ. Good and evil, true and false, are little more than personal preferences with no objective reality apart from the revelation of God in the incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is no good in life apart from Christ. Nothing good apart from Christ. In him flows all that is good. So how can we find it anywhere else? And yet we try. People say we can, but it's false. Paul prays that we might attain to the knowledge of this mystery, which is Christ. Because assurance, listen, that is grounded in anything or anyone else, is at best wishful thinking. Confidence in who God is and what he has purposed to achieve comes only by knowing and receiving, relishing and rejoicing in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Whatever else we learn in our study of scripture, it serves us well only to the degree that it points to and consummates in the person of Jesus. Not in him, but in him alone are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Isn't that beautiful? And don't be misled by Paul's language, though. Paul's not saying that Christ is mysterious or hidden in the sense that we just can't figure him out, right? No, he is a mystery in the sense that, that it wasn't until God, God revealed to this revealed this once hidden truth about how he's going to redeem the world through his very own son. It was hidden then in the Old Testament days. People had no idea that God himself would actually come and take on human flesh. But now we know, we understand the mystery has been, the mystery has been revealed. And knowledge and wisdom are hidden in him, not in the sense of it being impenetrable um, or, or beyond our understanding. But rather, when Paul says that it's hidden in him, it's, it's in the sense of being deposited or stored in Christ. In other words, he's the only person in place where authentic, accurate knowledge of God and his ways with mankind can be found. Also, when Paul says that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Christ, he isn't saying that a person can't know anything at all if he isn't a Christian. I know some Christians think that. But it's not true. The world is full of really brilliant, talented atheists. Our universities and think tanks are populated with highly intellectual, well-educated scholars who know nothing of Jesus beyond their admission that, yeah, there was a guy named Jesus who once walked the earth 2,000 years ago. Paul isn't saying that you can't, that all things, um, 
that all the treasures of wisdom. He's not saying that you can't be smart and know things. Rather, Paul's point is that true knowledge of the ultimate meaning of human existence is found only in the light of the identity of Jesus Christ and in his redemptive work for us. Insight into the character of God and, and God's relationship with his creation is found only by looking to the person and work of Jesus. Consider this, the nature and eternal destiny of the human soul, the very grounds by which we differentiate between good and evil, the wisdom of God with regards to his ways in this world, as well as our very pathways to being reconciled with God. Listen, they are all tethered to Christ. If we know him, we know them. Right? Storms writes that Paul's language is both extensive and intensive. He declares that all, not merely some, of the treasures, not trivialities, of wisdom and knowledge are in Christ. His, his point is twofold. First, he's saying there's a vast reservoir of riches in knowing Jesus. To say all the treasures, it points to the lavish, inexhaustible, far-reaching, mind-blowing, breathtaking realities that we discover and enjoy as we grow together in knowledge of Christ. Have you ever watched that reality TV show, Gold Rush? I'm guessing just probably the dudes here, right? But maybe, maybe, maybe there's a, a female who's seen Gold Rush. Uh, for those of you who don't know, it's a show that follows three groups of miners up in the Yukon, and they take these giant tracts of land, and they bulldoze away the topsoil and, and so that they're left with what they call um, gold-rich pay dirt. And then they load this pay dirt into this giant wash box and throw a bunch of water on it, and they wash away all the dirt and all the rocks so that all that remains is the gold in the box. But eventually, even after getting like thousands of ounces of gold, eventually what happens is what? That patch of ground runs out of pay dirt. And they have to pack up and look elsewhere. These false churches in Colossae were trying to get some in the church to, to pack up and look elsewhere. Paul corrects them and us by saying essentially, when you stake your claim on Christ, you will never run out of pay dirt. The more you mine, the more you have. See, the treasures that Christ is for the church is one that can never be exhausted. The longer we walk together in love and in faithfulness as the body of Christ, the more, not less, mind-blowing and beautiful and breathtaking Jesus becomes. Second, of equal importance, Paul's language reminds us that knowledge of Christ is to be honored and valued above all things. Is that not how we would treat something we treasure? <laughs> we would care for it. We would esteem it. We wouldn't just lay it out on the street for someone to pick it up. We would hold it near and dear. The knowledge and wisdom that we find in Christ and in Christ alone are not to be treated casually or flippantly or presumptuously. As Paul writes elsewhere, the, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God as revealed in the face of Jesus Christ is a treasure of infinite worth and value. 
So ponder it deeply. Pray for it. Plunder its riches. Protect it from defilement. Penetrate its mysteries. Prize it above all else on earth, all wealth and human wisdom and fleshly gain. And let us do this in community. Why try mining for the riches of the mind of Christ apart from the body of Christ? And yet we try. And why, if you mine a treasure of insight from Christ, would you not share with the body of Christ to which you belong? There is great treasure to be mined in gospel community. So we looked at the blessing of gospel community and the treasure of gospel community. In this text, Paul opens our eyes to to the beauty and the importance of gospel community, that, that gospel blessing and gospel treasure are enjoyed together in the body of Christ. Where is the resurrected Jesus Christ found on earth today? In the body of Christ, with the word of Christ. Jesus gave his life so that we would become one body. The love that motivated him to sacrifice for our sakes is the same love that unites us in shared sacrifice for Christ and for each other. When we are knit together in love and gospel community, we are able to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding, which is Christ, our treasure. Where does this leave us this morning? Humbled, I hope. But we're proud Americans. We elevate individuality above community. Add to this fact that being knit together, it's hard. It's messy work. Scripture calls us sheep. Sheep stink. Sheep are messy. Sheep are hard to get along. They don't get along well with each other. It's hard and messy work. But it is the good work to which we've been called to do together. So before coming to the Lord's Supper, think it through. Why on earth should you sacrifice comfort and give yourself to the body of Christ? Why? Because Christ did for us. It brought Jesus great joy to offer up his life for the body. So to us. It will bring us great joy too as we sacrifice to become more and more knit together. And so, Grace Church, let us not consider this like a nice option. This gospel community that God's forming. May we, like Paul, be concerned for it. And may we struggle to enter into it together. Let's pray. Jesus, we see Paul's words in this text and how he struggled with great compassion. He knew what this church needed. They needed unity, being knit together in love with the focus on the treasure, which is you, Jesus Christ. And I, we know that this is your desire for Grace Church, that we would be knit together in love. I pray that we would push aside any f- false, plausible arguments that we can do the Christian life alone, that, that, that there is worth and value apart from Christ and his body. 
I pray you would humble us, but also bring us joy as we gather together and grow in wisdom and in knowledge and in love for you, Jesus, we pray. Amen.